Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Up to Some Good. Today, my guest is Katerina Unger, an Austrian entrepreneur, industrial designer, inventor, and a speaker at many global and university events, including two TED Talks. She has been named by MIT Technology Review as one of the innovators under 35, and her work has won her the Red Dot Design Award and the Bonsai Sustainability Award, amongst many others. So after studying industrial design in Austria and design for social impact in the U.S., Katarina founded Livin in 2014, which is a think tank and a design agency for biotech, agricultural production, and food industries. And just a year later, she founded Living Farms, a company that turns insects into sustainable food for human and animal consumption. And they also sell insect products for industrial purposes. So Living Farms' key product is the Living Farms Hive, which is a multi-layer hatchery that allows owners to raise mealworms from home by feeding them food scraps. They also sell insect products to industrial facilities who might use them as fertilizers or to feed animals. To scale their mission, which is to empower people to co-create lives that are healthy for the people and sustainable for the planet. Living Farms also launched an educational program called the Hive Explorer, which dives into why it is so important for us to rethink our consumption patterns. Katerina now lives between Vienna and Hong Kong, both of which have headquarters for Living Farms. And she's speaking with me from Vienna today. And I'm very excited to speak to her. So now I'd like to welcome her onto the podcast. Hi, Katerina. Welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to speak to you. I have heard both of your TED Talks and I've shared it with my family and they're all fascinated and very excited for me to be able to speak to you today because I was just talking to my sister a few days ago about impact investing and we were both interested to invest in maybe insect protein companies. So this is like a topic that our whole family is talking about right now. And so actually, the first question is not really about insects yet, but because you're such a, a person with so many different talents. You're an entrepreneur, an industrial designer, an inventor, and a speaker. I was just wondering, where does your passion for using innovation to change the world originate from? That's a really good question. <laughs> I think when, when I was a kid, I had already kind of two very opposite interests of what is like anyway in a kind of a, a typical school kind of way, right, defined as very opposite. So on the one hand, I was really interested in natural sciences, right. in nature, in animals. And on the other hand, I was always interested in the creative arts. I was playing guitar. I was painting from a really young age. So I always had like these two kind of opposite ends. And going throughout my schooling, a lot of the creative part actually vanished for some time, which I think is very typical as well. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then so by the end of my main education, which in, in Austria, we have like A-levels at, at 18. And then afterwards, you go to university, you have to decide what, where you're going to go. Uh, at that point, I actually was pretty firm that I would do something about biology. I actually was interested in studying veterinary sciences. But then kind of last minute, this thing came up that there's something called industrial design where I could just kind of invent stuff and that just seemed like the perfect opportunity to kind of reconnect to like my creative inner self and like combine the two trades and look into on the one hand like very scientific or kind of technical projects probably but on the other hand also combine it with a creative approach to it and uh, yes yeah, so I decided to apply for for studying industrial design and it worked out miraculously and and then it just just happened and it turned out to be really the the, the right thing for for me yeah I mean 
it definitely is not so easy to balance both the left brain and the right brain, I feel. And I, and I think not a lot of people have the capacity to do both. So as an industrial designer, where did your passion for social impact come from? Because a designer can design lots of different things. But I know that after industrial design, you also wanted to study social impact design. Is that really what triggered your interest towards studying systems on on a higher level? So actually, I think that was a bit of a coincidence, actually. <laughs> like the social impact part yeah, kind yeah. of came into my life a bit abruptly. Before I, before I finished studying industrial design, I went to Hong Kong. So I had my first experience in Hong Kong where I worked for a, for a British designer. Actually, we designed a couple of different things, starting from cars down to headphones and furniture, like a really large. Oh, that's a wide range of product yeah yeah and uh, and I really loved it I mean I enjoyed it a lot but what kind of struck me more about my time in Hong Kong was when when I saw all the different kinds of foods that you can eat there you know like coming from Central Europe where food wise were pretty boring it was super exciting for me and I started to think about how it all works I, I grew up in the countryside like on a farm and I there it's really easy to understand and pretty straightforward like the food that you put on your table you know you know you go out you pick the carrot and you have your cow outside and it makes sense right right? and once you're in a big city you start wondering like how the whole system works and when I came back I I started to look into into alternatives for meat production that's how I came across insects and that was the moment actually where I had to decide where to go in the in the U.S. to study I had a Fulbright scholarship and I had to kind of pick uh, what I wanted wanted to do. Like I had a great bunch of schools on my list. However, what really like struck me was designed for social impact because it was mm-hmm. so fundamentally different from anything I had done before. Mm-hmm. It was really about about designing organizations, designing systems, designing how people interact with each other and why they right. do it. And that really intrigued me as opposed to designing products. Right. Um, so social impact design is really about designing something that is it's not anything physical but it's an experience or or the way people communicate so it's more more on the systems level that's correct I see I see okay yeah so I was reading your website and then on your website you mentioned that a designer needs to observe the world on a systems level in order to create impact through physical strategic inventions can you tell me about what you mean by that right yeah you really did your research (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah so I believe that, you know, in as an industrial designer, we get really excited about products. We get really excited about how things feel, how things look, what materiality and like we, we get excited about very specific things in an object. And I think what's really important, though, I for me personally, I, I found that after a while I'm with making a lot of products, I'm kind of adding to this huge pile of trash in the world that ultimately is being disposed, you know, and some things are designed so that eventually you kind of buy the next edition of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And that's what kind of frustrated me about industrial design, that that ultimately we, we want to produce, we want to like make new things, but at the same time, we have to think about the system behind it and, and the, the logic behind things and whether it is the right thing to make a product, you know, should we rather make, yeah, yeah. make yeah. kind of a, like a, a system of some sort yeah. uh, rather than an object uh, that ultimately gets thrown out. And so, yeah, that's what's behind my vision kind of. Right. Of got it. Got it. So going back to how Hong Kong sort of 
made you more interested in food systems and people's relationships with food. What did you do then to try to to solve this problem that you observed, which is that people didn't really have a direct connection with their food? So I started out with just doing a lot of research. I started to to look into, okay, how does a piece of meat actually end up on the table in on on the table in front on a plate in front of me where does it start like what kind of companies are involved in like breeding the cows or whatever how does then like where does transport happen and i found out during my research that feed animal feed is like one of the most fundamental issues in the food system we spend two-thirds of our food that our crops that are produced worldwide are going into animal feed so we're using a lot of resources to actually produce animal products and and that really i think that wouldn't have occurred to me to such an such a level of urgency if i if i hadn't been to hong kong where I think in such a busy, crazy environment, you just start thinking about problems. Yeah, okay. Because before that, you were always in Austria and the relationship with food was much more direct. Even even in cities like Vienna, would you be able to know more easily where the food sources come from? I guess so. I mean, most people in Austria are not from Vienna, are not from a city, but are from the countryside, mm-hmm. right? And and like we're uh, a country that is like agriculture is like a big part of of, of what we're doing as right. an economy, and and so it's more prevalent, I think. And I think that yeah, because I've had this background of growing up in the country and then going to like a huge city, that just kind of the, the difference in thinking and the difference in approach also of people would live in different parts of the world and think about what food they eat. Right. Okay. So before launching Living Farms, you actually launched Live In First, which is a think tank and design agency related to agricultural production and food systems, right? So how did that sort of shape and then shift to become Living Farms? Do they still both exist? They still both exist. Okay. Um, however, Live-In Studio is really like on the backtrack and, okay. and Living Farms is really the major thing that I'm that I'm focusing on and that I'm doing. There's really not a lot of time to do anything else. I'm um, sure. Yeah. So yeah, Living Studio was kind of the first the first company I set up because at that point we were still doing a lot of consulting and the insect farm that I had that I had developed in 2013 was kind of the first real product that that we developed within within Live-In Studio while we were working on other client projects. So the idea behind Live-In Studio was really that like we would set up client projects and we would do research projects as well. We did a fungi project, for example, with a researcher in, in mm. Holland, like all projects that are centered around living organisms, about right. plants, about new types of food, about new types of growing things and it very quickly ended up ended up that it that it became urgent to found another entity just for the purpose of only developing insect technologies because that by itself was such a big topic that we had to kind of do something specifically for that so how did you go from just being being interested in food systems to release focusing on insects because there are so many challenges right in in food systems already right and that was really the big part of a a kind of a big crisis in my in my approach back then where I felt as an as especially as an industrial designer like you know where can I add value how can I even attempt to like solve a huge problem like this like it's it's just it seems so huge that you just feel really helpless you know it's very overwhelming 
overwhelmed. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I approached it in a very systematic way. I researched all the different options that we have, like you could grow lab, meat in a lab, right? You can use plant-based alternatives. You can uh, grow insects and insects just combine something that was very, that, that gave me kind of a unique position to do something about it because Firstly, it solved a, a major thing in the food system, which was about animal feed, mm. which could be solved by insects. It solves the food waste issue because they can largely be grown on food waste. So it solved that part. And there was a third really important thing, which was it's kind of mechanical, a technical, a practical challenge to grow insects. So you need to develop products and mechanisms to grow insects really well on a larger scale and mm -hmm. to make it easy and simple and straightforward and that was a, a challenge unique unique uniquely positioned so that it could be solved by someone with an industrial design with a product development background yeah well, so other things challenge would be more you. on a yeah so it was a, it was a big challenge for me yeah other other items would have been perfect for a biochemist right or mm -hmm. for for someone else to to tackle but For me, that was kind of the sweet spot where I thought I could I could make a difference. Right. And do you remember when the first time you ever ate an insect was? Yeah, it was back in the countryside with my dad when I was very young. And there's a type of, of tree that has an, an infestation with a tiny larva in there that are growing in their leaves. And the, the birds would always come and like pick out the larva from those leaves. And that's when my dad made me eat my first larva. Really? <laughs> he, just, he just took it out from the hole and gave it to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually the very first time probably that I ate an insect. <laughs> is it, but is it okay to eat it completely raw? Like, did you get a stomachache or anything? No, I mean, I'm a country person, you know, I'm like, I'm very, I'm yeah. very unsusceptible to, to like yeah. Yeah. weird smells or weird tastes that all, that all doesn't really matter to me. And it's a tiny, tiny larva. So. Yeah. Okay. So the, I remember the first time I had an insect was, I think that was also the only time actually in Siem Reap in Cambodia. They, they also, I don't know if you've been before, but they also um, sell a lot of insects and consume a lot of insects as part of their street food. And mm -hmm. especially in the touristy areas, they had stalls with, you know, like fried tarantulas and I don't remember what else, crickets and stuff. And I think it was just because I was there, I decided to try it with my friends. And I chose tarantula because it looked a little bit like soft shell crab. So it looked less unfamiliar. But I also only tried one leg because the, the <laughs> tourist next to me told me that the gut was very bitter. So I said, okay, I will just take a risk and try the leg. And it was okay. It tasted a bit like soft shell crab, but it was just a little bit hairy and it got stuck <laughs> in my throat. But it was interesting. Yeah. So I was listening to your TED talk and you actually said that all of us eat 500 grams of insects every year. And I was just wondering how that happens. Yeah, it uh, does not happen while you're kind of on a bicycle or, 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 or sleeping or anything like that. It really happens by eating everyday food because insects just end up in the food chain by processing. Mm -hmm. So they are in grain powders. They just come into production in different ways. They are in frozen vegetables, for example. They are mm -hmm. in, in canned or packaged soup, dried soup powders, for example. They're just in there and that's how it accumulates to like have 
AFRIKG, just about doing it more, more consciously, right? Right, yeah. So going back to Living Farms now, can you explain a little bit about how the Living Farms hive works? Because I think a lot of listeners probably wouldn't have seen it. So maybe if you describe how how it works as a system to help grow the insects that would be that would help them visualize yeah sure yeah so the hive so we have we have different products right so so the first product was the hive home uh, which is like home growing for for food purposes the second product was hive explorer for education so it's a much smaller hive so to say that does pretty much the same thing but just on a much smaller kind of more compact level and then the third product that we're doing now is an industrial version of the Mm -hmm. hive so we're actually doing a much much larger hive for industries to use it as a waste management solution so and i can quickly yeah explain what these different products do so the first one is hive home we're not selling it at the moment actually we're going to do a revamp of it at some Mm -hmm. point but right now we're not it's a multi-layer kind of box system that has the, the microclimate is controlled so there's it's Air, uh, the air circulation inside, it's heated inside. It also has LEDs that show you when to harvest the mealworms. It grows the entire life cycle of the mealworm with a harvesting section as well. Mm-hmm. So beetles are in there. The beetles lay eggs. The eggs hatch into a mealworm larva that can then be harvested and eaten. And a few of those mealworms are always left inside. And those ones go into pupation and then mm-hmm. grow into 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 beetles again that lay eggs again and the whole life cycle starts oh, again. I see. So interesting. I actually was not aware that beetles and mealworms are the same thing. So right. beetles yeah, it's more family into mm-hmm. mealworms. Yeah. Mealworms oh. is kind of a misnomer. They're called mealworms, but mm-hmm. in fact they're larvae, larvae of of beetles. Oh, um, okay, so okay. Teen, teenager beetle, so to say. Yeah. Right. And, um, yeah. So that's that's what it does, and people have it in their homes, and they feed them on uh, feed scraps, and then they harvest uh, the mealworms. An LED will show up when one of the trays is kind of ready for harvest. You have multiple so that you can harvest every other week, hmm. and then you take it out and you put it into the harvest process, which is basically a sieving process to get the good mealworms out. And then you can freeze them. And after freezing, you can cook them and process them. Sorry. So you have to freeze yeah. it first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We, we recommend to freeze them first. Okay. And that's more of a hygiene issue. It's uh, also Condition. more humane to put them in the freezer. Mm-hmm. Got it. So all of the hives only harvest mealworms. Is there a reason why you only harvest mealworms or you chose mealworms out of all the other insects? Yeah, we chose mealworms because mealworms are really nice housemates. They don't housemates. make any yeah. yeah, they don't make any sound. They don't have any particular smell. Mm-hmm. They can eat a lot of different things. They're in dry food. They don't smell. So it's just and they always taste good. <laughs> So mm-hmm. you, when you harvest them, you it, you can make you can be sure of it tastes nice. So that's the reasons why we went for mealworms. And yeah, and the second product, our Hive Explorer, is a smaller version of the Hive Home. So all the different layers that are in the in the Hive Home are now condensed into one single tray, where the whole life cycle of the mealworm and the beetles happen. And it's primarily used for we develop the curriculum around it, and we use it for schools and for education. And what we're working on as a, as a key focus at the moment 
is Hive Pro. So it's Hive Professional. And Hive Professional is really large. It, at the minimum, can convert thousands of tons of uh, food waste every year into, into insect proteins. Mm -hmm. And for this version, we're working with another type of insect as a primary focus, which is a black soldier fly larvae. And the black soldier fly larvae is fly larva, as the name already says. It's very much suitable for an industrial solution because the fly larva uh, has a much uh, faster life cycle. So mm. it can grow within a week only, and it can eat even larger amount type amounts and types of waste. So you can feed it on wet waste, for example, mm -hmm. um, as compared to dry waste with a mealworm. Okay. And, and yeah, this is a waste management solution for the industry. So we work with food and feed industries that have thousands of tons of food waste every year. And what they do with it right now is they usually have biogas digesting companies pick it up and they actually pay for it. So it's a loss for them. They, use, mm -hmm. they lose a six digit figure every on, on their waste. But when installing our plug and play machinery, they can just, we create the interface between their waste and our machinery. And it's automatically then sourced into an automatic insect rearing process. Our insect larva eat the waste and what comes out of it at the end is protein powder, fats, and fertilizer that our customers can then sell. So we sell to them the, uh, the machinery oh. as, well as, as well as baby larva. So we, mm -hmm. they do not grow the adult flies on side, but mm. they just grow the baby larva. They just feed the baby larva until mm. they're fat and they can be harvested. And, and oh, Wow, that's really interesting. I wasn't aware that you also, so after after they use it to dispose of their waste, like I wasn't aware that they can also create products from it, like the protein and the fertilizer, and then they can sell it. So in fact, after a while, I mean, it offsets and they're actually earning money from it by selling those additional Correct. products. Correct. Yeah, they can turn loss into profit, literally. Okay. And so the, the insect protein and the fertilizer, is that does that need to be processed by another third-party machine or is that also part of the system? It's part of the system. Oh, so we provide plug-and-play machinery that does everything for you. So it takes your food waste, it feeds it to the insects, and then it processes the end products and then you can sell the end products. Oh my goodness. That is very clever. You have such an industrial designer mindset. Do you mind explaining like what a plug-and-play system means? I'm not too familiar with that term. Right. Okay. Yeah, 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 sure. It just means that typically it's it's basically a factory, right? So it's mm -hmm. an industrial kind of machinery. So usually what what happens in such production processes is mm -hmm. that you need quite a long time and a lot of people that are planning out the process and then setting it up in the factory, assembling different types of machinery and plugging it in, synchronizing it with each other until everything works. So what we do, however, is kind of a module. It's a modularized system. So it contains of the rearing module, the processing module, and so on. And these are already synchronized with each other, which means when we come to the, the, the factory side of the customer, we can literally kind of like 
drop it. There is, of course, also some sort of installation and so on required. Right. However, it's much faster than a typical uh, industrial process. We kind okay. of drop it there and then we plug it in and you're kind uh, of ready to go. And um, also, means plug it in and play. So you plug it in plug and, and it works. Play. I see. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Right. Also, because the 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 reproductive process, so the the baby larva, and the growing of of those is not happening with our customers, which means mm. that our customers, for them, it's really easy. They set up the machinery, they pop in the baby larva, more or less, mm -hmm. and then they're ready to to convert their waste into proteins. Which otherwise, if they would also take care of the whole life cycle of the insect, also producing the babies, it would take them a long time to set mm, it up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And where do you find the original larva, for instance, the, the right. eggs or the larva? Yeah, yeah we, we source them from many different places and we've developed our own strain so we've grown our own strain that we cultivate here and that's what our insect colony right now um mm. is okay wow fascinating okay so i actually want to understand a little bit more about the benefits of consuming insects versus consuming meat for instance mm -hmm. okay yeah so benefits of consuming insects as compared to to meat is that on the on the one hand there's something very very particular about insects that is a benefit which is they have a fiber content which no other type of meat in fact has so that kind of combines very beneficial traits of the plant world and the and and the animal world when you eat the meat so typically for example what fiber does it is it, it breaks down a sugar and, and carbohydrates and makes them better digestible. So that's why it's really beneficial if you, for example, eat a lot of rice, which happens in Asia all the time, right? And a lot of people have diabetes due to both sugary drinks, of course, and rice. And if you add, for example, mealworm powder to it or insect powder to it, it increases the level of fiber in the dish and it helps you to digest the, the, the carbs and the sugars much better oh wow okay so i actually wasn't aware that was one of the ways you could eat the insects so you put it into carbs and it helps to process the carbs yeah. better but what would you say to some people who i mean a lot of people nowadays are plant-based or vegan and they don't want any animal products they can easily also have a sustainable diet by consuming plants and what would you say to those people yeah i mean you know i think yeah, like eating plants and growing plants is definitely something that that i i i would advocate I'm, I'm definitely not saying you know insects are better than plants or anything like that the only difference is that like i think insects make sense in a very particular kind of scenario and way right wherever there is waste wherever there are resources that are underutilized right now they can be eaten by insects and they can be in that way made into into valuable proteins fats and fertilizers and that's something that does not require additional mm. land resources the, the you know the food has already been grown it's already there 
and it cuts down a lot of your emissions. So actually, even compared to soy, insects cut down 92% of emissions of, uh, of CO2 equivalent uh, emissions. And in comparison to composting, for example, if waste is being composted, we save 70% of emissions with insects. So it's actually really sustainable to use insects in food and feed applications because in plants, of course, in soy, for example, and so on, you still need a lot of land, you still mm-hmm. need a lot of water, you need fertile land resources right. um, to grow them, you need a lot of space. Yeah, and, to create uh, those plant-based products. Exactly. And that's what you can save with insects. So people should eat more vegetables, for sure, and more plants, but insects can add value wherever there's, there's waste that they can convert. I see what you mean, because it sounds like from what you're saying that it's more circular because when the waste is already there, the insects can help to consume the waste and it, and at the same time, they also Mm -hmm. don't take many resources to, to rear at all. Whereas, I mean, it's also great that there are so many plant-based alternatives out there, but all of those require soy pea protein, which again, takes, you know, agricultural resources to create. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, so what was the most interesting insect dish that you've ever had? Good question. I think uh, the most interesting one I probably had was in Japan. I once I went to Japan and we had an insect foraging session just outside of Tokyo in like a, a forest with a few uh, Japanese people that really turned around every stone and every kind of bark of every tree to find all kinds of insects. And the uh, foraging, the foraging yeah. machine was was to later consume the insects, or was it? What yes. was the purpose of yeah. it? Yeah, oh, okay. Goal of it, yeah. We ended up, yeah, uh, eating all of those insects, and there were some very specific tastes in it. Most specifically, there was something called an earthworm or sandworm, which was in fact very earthy in its in its taste. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably the most interesting. So, one. an earthy taste would mean it tastes a little bit like soil. Wow. Because it mainly eats soil. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's very interesting that in Japan there are such expeditions as as insect foraging expeditions. So people just come together, they find insects, and then eat it together. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, wow. I mean it's a very it's a very small community. You know, yeah, if you're yeah. in the, working in this field, then you get to get to know quite a lot of different. Yeah. <laughs> okay so going on to a little bit about the issue we we mentioned briefly before we started this podcast which is a lot of people are still opposed to the idea of eating insects because of the fear that it's unhygienic or the gross factor of it are you doing a lot of educational or marketing initiatives here to really get more consumers on board Right. Actually, in the earlier years of our business, we did a lot of that. And then we noticed that, you know, it is just going to take a lot of time. That's the fact. That's that's what it is. You need to kind of penetrate the mind of consumers over and over again until they get used to an idea. And it is not a peculiar case with insects. It's the same thing with soybeans, you know, with like tofu products that were for a very long time, they were very, not in Asia, granted, but in the Western world, it was 
for a very long time, nothing that was particularly popular. Now it's a it's a very common you know thing to eat tofu and 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 the like. And same with sushi, and the same with a lot of other things. So it it will just take time. And we, in the meantime, we rather focused on on actually educating the public and also young people about the benefits of insects in commercial systems, in industrial systems, in the food system, what can they do and what can they contribute in terms of composting, in terms of adding value there. I think laying the groundwork for that is really meaningful. And then the ick factor will go away kind of step by step. Okay. Also, as there's more dishes around, more and more people kind of processing insect powder into like beautiful dishes, it will naturally come that people get more and more interested in it. As a yeah, yeah, I agree. It definitely takes time. But what you guys are doing with the educational initiatives, I think makes a lot of sense because it's not purely about consuming insects. It's about being aware of how much waste the food system is creating and also to rethink the whole food system the way we exactly. consume, right? So we approach it on two ways. We do like educational initiatives about everything that kind of insects can bring to the table. And then on the other hand, we tackle uh, the industry side of things and we offer a kind of really waste management solution for the industries to from the bottom up uh, sort of create a positive impact in the food system without having to convince individual customers about eating a mealworm, you know. Right. And what I wanted because- to move on to, sorry, keep going. Uh, sorry, I just wanted to add that that like the positive impact by having insects as a feed, as an animal feed, is actually a, a really big one as well. We don't notice that you know fish, for example, of which we have less and less of. And by 2030, we'll be left with only 10% of the fish in the ocean that we have today. And already we're using fish meal as a major ingredient in a lot of different feeds. And we need five tons of ocean fish to produce one ton of fish meal. So insect uh, protein is very similar in terms of nutritional profile and values as, as fish meal. And if we can replace it to a large extent, we're going to literally like save a lot of tons of fish in the ocean that are that are really important to feed again larger fish or larger larger like whales in the ocean that keep up our ecosystem Mm -hmm. yes i don't remember the specific statistics but i was also reading an an article about how you require uh, like many thousands of tons of fish meal in order to produce a few tons of salmon or larger fish which really doesn't make any sense so moving on to the educational aspect of of living farms which is the hive explorer you mentioned that you have a simplified version of the hive which you put in education centers and schools do you have any other material to support that or do you say mainly put it in schools and let the children watch and learn no sure every hive explorer comes with a hive explorer magazine which kind of gives you the foundation and like has some really fun activities in it and then we have we have additional content curricula actually for secondary school students for example where we go through a variety of lessons starting from coding down to using the fertilizer from the insects to bokashi composting, growing microalgae on the on the fertilizer. There's a lot of fun activities that you can do with the help of the Hive Explorer and through the wonders of, of larva growing. Yeah, that sounds like so much fun. I remember that when I was younger, I also had like had a fascination towards insects. I think they were centipedes or something. I, I used to take them home from 
the garden in school. And I also really liked sea monkeys. Have you heard of sea monkeys? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I thought they were fascinating. So I think the the opportunity to really understand the whole life cycle and understand how it works is such a great opportunity for children to start learning about food systems and how we consume yeah. food. Yeah, that's great. And so I wanted to ask you what what would you say is the biggest challenge you had when launching Living Farms? Yeah, we had a lot of challenges throughout throughout the business, especially, especially you know, as you know, like we've we've started with the Hive Home, then Hive Explorer, now Hive Pro. That's all actually very different kinds of businesses. The first one is a consumer-specific business. The second one is an education business. And the third one is a, is a B2B industrial business. So there's very different approaches, very different ways of talking about the same subject. At the end of the day, it's about insects helping us achieve something better in the world, right? Like make our food system more sustainable. But the lenses through which you have to communicate it to potential Mm. customers is very different. And also the ways of the methods of kind of putting it into action, whether this is like uh, manufacturing something at the factory or, or, or asking someone to design a curriculum or actually building industrial pieces of equipment is you always have to learn a bunch of stuff. And I think this learning curve and learning process, that was always the most challenging one. And then, and then apart from that, I think the, the, two, the two other uh, main challenges that keep persisting, I think eternally probably, is cash flow <laughs> and people. <laughs> the right. team is the most important asset in a company. And yeah. keeping people happy, keeping people motivated at work is a challenge, even if you're having a super awesome business, right? You constantly have to think about yes. how you can make people happy here and sustaining uh, them and all the, the rest of the stuff with enough cash is the other one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think you you guys first launched Living Farms, the Hive with a Kickstarter campaign, right? Do you currently have any funding or work with any investors? We are now, well, yeah, we're funded by uh, by yeah. a venture capitalist and by private investment and, and also by public grant funding as well. And we are out there now raising another Series A investment. Yeah, not through very public means. It's, it more goes yeah. to yeah. Uh, like venture capital. Mm. But yeah, yeah, okay. the early days were all about, all about getting yeah. pre-orders for our equipment mm-hmm. and therefore the Kickstarter. Okay. And going back to the part about the challenges with the the human resources element, right? Like keeping the team happy and everything. I mean, you you were already doing so much as an inventor, a designer, the speaker, and, and an entrepreneur. But do you think as a manager, you've learned something different about yourself? Definitely, and still yeah. do every day. <laughs> every day, there's 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 new learnings. So yeah, that process. I don't think it ever stops. Every person in the company is so different. We have. 15 different nationalities. We're about 20 people now and we have 15 different nationalities. So someone recently joked, we're kind of the UN. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, so, so we're very diverse, but we're also not in only in terms of nationalities, but we have very diverse backgrounds. Uh, we have biologists, we have basically farmers, you know, pr- production people. We have uh, engineers, we have business people. We like it's a lot of very, very different mindsets that kind of come together to work on this project, and that makes it really, really interesting, but mm-hmm. also challenging. 
Yeah, and I would imagine having offices in both Vienna and Hong Kong make it additionally challenging, right? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah. For sure, yeah. But it also it also makes a lot of sense for us because we have kind of this extended arm where in Hong Kong a lot of the education business is really is makes a lot of sense because there's much more kind of privately funded more there's more financial power in schools that can support interesting projects mm-hmm. um, than in public in a public system in Central Europe and then also we have of course this extended arm to do manufacturing and to get in touch with with manufacturers and suppliers in Asia, which is also a big benefit for our business. Oh, I see. Okay. And what what is the vision for Living Farms in the next few years? Do you want to, I mean, I know right now you're developing the industrial component, which is the Hive Pro, which is already a big project. But what about looking forward to the next few years? Is there anything that you want to focus on or other products you you want to be developed no i think that the hive pro is really the major project here i think well i guess there's two two focus uh points here one is really in advancing and in improving all our educational materials and making our education services even better and the other and the other one is hive pro product development and and really delivering value to our customers which in those industrial projects it can take quite a a bit of time so it will easily take up the next years to to deliver on that right and are there any trends in say the food agricultural industry that excite you or do you think will be quite relevant to what you're doing yeah i mean the whole vegan vegan movement plant-based movement is incredibly exciting i think right now there's so many things happening it's extremely relevant and it's extremely important that we have this shift away from kind of a very heavily animal-based industry and food system towards a, more of a, of a, of a plant-based one. And yeah, and I think insects are just, just one of the pieces of the puzzle that can fit, uh, fit in there really well. And it, that, that's, yeah, I'm really excited about that. With having to juggle so many things and so many roles every single day, do you have a, a ritual or do you have some practices you do during times when you're more stressed or you you just feel overwhelmed? Yeah, I try to I try to hang out with friends and talk about other things that are not insect related. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, and I swim. I, I, I go swimming quite a okay. bit. Okay. Okay, okay. So is that yeah. is that like a daily thing? So you go swimming in the morning and then all not totally daily but like every other day or every third day at least I do that and I noticed that you know it's kind of that being in a different medium I I noticed that other types of sports don't work so well for me but the swimming part just really works because you can kind of dive in and you're kind of in surrounded by different mediums you you submerge and that's kind of what does the trick for me I see and do you eat insects every day yourself do you always add them to meals not every day but pretty frequently yeah (laughs) right right so now I want to move on to the up to some good questions I have and the first question is what is the best investment that you've made over the past year what is the best investment I think the best investments are typically investments that you put into yourself right like buying really good books like Whenever I buy a, a good book, I'm really like, okay, this 
this just changes your life fundamentally you always have to have good references to i cannot recall like now a very specific book that i recently oh i, I read factfulness which mm -hmm. definitely was a really good investment it's by a swedish author a swedish doctor and it talks about facts of the world in, in where facts about vaccination rates in kids around the world for example in different income levels and how people live uh, around the world and how distorted our view on it, in fact, is. So if he would usually speak in front of World Bank executives or, or, or the UN, you know, and, and he said that even these really educated people often have very, very wrong perceptions about how poor, you know, countries are and how poor people are living in those countries. And it's not like that at all. The world is much more positive than that. We have mm -hmm. much more progress in the world uh, than what is typically seen or heard online or in the news. Usually oh, people see. very much, so people... very much focus on the negative things. Okay. And that was a really good, yeah, but that was a really good one. It kind of shows you, okay, like you, you can, you can approach topics always in multiple ways and actually see them in a much more positive light. Okay. Factfulness. Right. I'll definitely have a look right. at that. And the second question is, if I gave you a million US dollars, what would you do with it? Well, that's kind of an easy question right now in my situation, because I would invest it in, in, in our business uh, and in, in growing what we're doing here. And yeah, I think like if it's just for me personally, I would invest it in great experiences, great learning experiences. Learning experiences as in courses or actual like workshops and everything that you can attend. could be courses or it could be also trips to maybe very remote places of the world where you wish usually wouldn't wouldn't mm -hmm. go one of the best investments in that case for example was in 2014 i i did a, a trip with mit to tanzania africa mm -hmm. and uh, we lived there for a couple of weeks with uh, with the maasai community and we kind oh, of okay. co-designed and co-created solutions with them which was one of the most most memorable trip i mean probably the most memorable trip in 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 my life and i would always invest money in, in such, wow. an, such an experience again what what solutions did you develop for the maasai community so in fact i mean my purpose there was actually to of course work with insects because the maasai people do eat insects they eat termites okay. however it turned out that when we landed there that this particular community it didn't eat they, they don't eat insects oh, actually they don't want to oh. they don't want to have anything to do with it so oh no <laughs> we, yeah but what we did with them was they face in general a big problem because they are they're migrating community originally right like they're they're migrating but because of climate change and because the land is now not not uh, like land is mostly privately owned, they cannot simply take their cows and go out grazing the land just anywhere. They really mm -hmm. have a big problem of being able to store feed and think ahead and plan ahead mm. for the dry season so that they, they are in a tr transition from being migrating to being settled farmers. And that transition we helped with hay baling machine like very mechanical simple hay baling machines for example so that they can store mm -hmm. dried grass and wow. hay yeah that sounds like such an incredible experience and you actually add value i think because with a lot of volunteer experiences abroad nowadays sometimes it's overly commercialized to the point where like you go there for a week or so and you help build something but i i don't know in the long term how much value that really adds but the the okay. trip you went on really sounds like it it, it 
made a huge impact on their lives and solved a huge problem that they have. I think so. Yeah, the mission was to to make people kind of want to learn, want to understand, and really co-create and co-develop solutions instead of just you know building something or bringing a solution mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. Um, that they should adapt. Right. Right. Okay. So the third question is. Can you tell me about an individual or a business who you think has been up to some good? Yeah, I mean, I know quite a lot, I think. But one of the, well, which one to name? It's internationally very well known, but it's close to Vienna. And those guys are actually pressing oils and nutrients out of seeds and kernels from fruit and and from fruits mainly mm-hmm. so usually now when you have uh, juice production and so on if you have apricots and peaches and so on yeah um, then it is wasted it's wasted yeah and usually they actually cannot be used because they have like acids in them that are that are not that are toxic that cannot be be eaten for example and this company is called Kentec and there they have developed solutions to actually make something out of those seeds and kernels and make them non-toxic and you can actually get a lot of nutrients out of it mm. and use it for superfoods in fact and 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 also cosmetic purposes I, I believe so that's something that I I found really cool. That is really clever. Wow. Okay, I'll I'll add that to the link below um, in the show notes. And finally, what do you like doing when you're up to no good yourself? Yeah, well, so I mean, I really love to like cycle. I really love to swim. But I also right now, especially I like to uh, kind of uh, furbish and, and decorate my apartment. I have a new apartment. And I just I get crazy about art and like what to hang on my walls. What type of art do you like? I kind of, I like a lot of very graphic, graphic style prints and okay. images. I have a, I have a comic art friend, for example, who's doing caricatures. I have a lot of his stuff uh, hanging on the walls. I just uh, recently bought something from, from a Hong Kong artist. She's doing very, kind of very simplified graphic prints as well. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm really into. Right. And do you still make any art yourself? Because at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned that you loved art, but you lost a little bit of that during high school. Every now and then I play the guitar, but that's about it, I'm afraid. <laughs> Not much more than that. Yeah. yeah. But I, I always have, I have projects on my mind that I want to do. For example, I, the, all the experiences that I had uh, in, the, in the past couple of years, I would really like to turn them into drawings. I, I used to draw a lot instead of like writing. So that's a project that I have kind of pending. Yeah. Well, I can keep you accountable for that (laughs) thank you so much though Katrina for being on up to some good today I really learned so much from you and I admire what you do so much I mean I'm sure it's not easy to be all of those things designer inventor speaker but you're doing so much good for the world and keep spreading your message about you know food systems and rethinking the way we consume food because I think that's so important and so needed right now and I'm very excited to see what you're doing next and I hope that you will continue to grow living farms and raise enough funding to continue expanding the business yeah thank so you thank lot. you so much thanks a lot for having me you. on thank your podcast you. i also wish you all the best thank you again for tuning in to up to some good i'm really happy that you're on this journey with me to learn about individuals and organizations who are giving back to our planet and our society if you enjoyed this episode Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on Apple. I also post content updates on our Instagram at up to underscore some good. And if there is a person in your life who you think will benefit from this episode, 
please share it with them. I always feel that sharing forms of inspiration and knowledge is a way of sending love, especially during COVID when it's difficult to see your loved ones in person. I think this is a really good way to connect and share inspiration. Also, if there is an inspiring individual who you think should be featured on Up To Some Good, please feel free to DM me on Instagram or send me an email via uptosomegood.podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to feature their story. In the meantime, stay healthy, do some good, and see you next time.